Amen. Thank you, worship team. That's beautiful. Um, we are studying the life of Joseph. This is our second conversation, our second sermon, looking at his life at the end of Genesis. And, uh, of course, the song we just sang uh, is coming from Exodus and what would happen some 400 years after the life of Joseph. Where did Israel come from? How did Israel end up in Egypt? Why were they captive? Well, those answers are in the end of Genesis in the life of Joseph. Last week we studied just the first section. We saw how Joseph um, was a favorite of his father Jacob. We saw that his brothers hated that and how Joseph delivered some dreams and they hated that even more. And so we're going to pick up this week with sort of the aftermath of that initial hatred uh, starting in verse 12 of Genesis 37. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us... Sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then, then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben turned to the pit, excuse me, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. And rendered to his brothers and said, excuse me, and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. 
Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we praise you that you are a rescuing God. Father, in this short chapter, this short passage, uh, we see such harm and such evil. And Father, we know our world is filled with both harm and evil. Uh, Even just hearing the report from Brian a few moments ago, our hearts long to see redemption. But Lord, we pray that through your spirit we would understand even the depth of sin within each of us, that we might seek you and be changed by you to be agents of good, agents that would seek redemption in this land for your glory. Amen. Um, It's a long story. Um, I want to just kind of walk through it again kind of quickly, and then we'll start to dive into some of the practical applications. So it's a little bit different than I often will preach. But uh, one of the things I want to say in the beginning is I keep coming back as I read different commentaries and even conversations to we kind of are wrestling with the story because why would these brothers kill Joseph? And there's, there's this tendency to either want Joseph to have been a little deserving. I don't think anybody would say he should have been killed, right? But a little bit of deserving, you know, in the way he bragged about his dreams. Or we want to say, no, Joseph was actually pure and these brothers are evil and I can't relate with them at all. But is there a third way? What if, what if Joseph is actually presented here as pure? Remember, the reason they want to kill him is not because of a bad report or even the the coat, as much as it's these dreams that say that one day, someday, he's going to be over them. What if it's true and they hate him and we're like them? What if that is our reality? That's what we're going to kind of ponder this morning. Uh, Let's just kind of walk through it together. Joseph um, is asked by his father to go to Shechem where his brothers are supposed to be. Now, Shechem is somewhat famous already. A few chapters earlier, um, the sister of these brothers, Leah's daughter, Dinah, had been um, raped by by the namesake of the town. And the brothers went in and through kind of a a ruse that got them all to perform a circumcision and become like faithful and then they murdered the men in the town. So that's what we're dealing with with these brothers. Great guys. And I just told you, you and I are like them. So why is Jacob sending sending Joseph to Shechem? Well, Shechem's also where Abraham enters into this region and it's a special place. And then later, this is not known yet, Joseph's bones will be buried at Shechem. So it's a very popular kind of, for the, for the original audience would have known that and they would have understood its importance. And Jacob is sending Joseph there to check on the brothers. Now, it's interesting how Joseph is there. He says, uh, here I am. It's a very interesting way it's written. It's very much, um, I am at your service. We'll talk more about Joseph in a little bit. So as you know, he goes, can't find his brothers. 
and a stranger happens upon him and knows what he's, I mean, asks him what he's doing and somehow has overheard the brother say they're going to go to Dothan. So Jacob goes down there and it's about 12 more miles and they conspire to kill him. And they say to him, here comes this dreamer, the actual uh, kind of the way it would be if you were to do like a wooden Hebrew translation. Here comes this master of dreams or this master dreamer. It's sort of this, again, this emphasis of the power of his dreams. And remember last week we talked about the fact that after he shared his dreams, it says his brothers were jealous of him. It didn't say his brothers thought this was ridiculous or crazy. It sounds like they kind of might even believe that God is in the dream, but they hate it. They hate that he has these dreams and they're ready to take him out. And you know the story, Reuben steps in to save him. It's interesting, Reuben says, listen, I don't know what he was doing. I think he had other business out in the field, so he kind of pops in and says, hey, why don't we just put him in a pit? Yeah, there's a pit, just throw him there and leave. Now, in that culture, you would have cisterns, which were designed to collect water when it rained, and these were large cisterns, and oftentimes when they were dry, people would be put in there to kind of trap them, like a jail of sorts. And so... Uh, that was not uncommon. In fact, Jeremiah if, at one point is in a cistern uh, later in the Old Testament. So here we have this idea from Reuben, but he takes off and leaves again. And the brothers, as you know, kidnap and, and deal with Joseph and put him in the pit. What's fascinating is it doesn't sound like they listen to Reuben at all because then Judah steps in and says, why would we want to kill him? So they clearly had ignored Reuben. And the answer to what Judah wants is he wants money. He also wants to maybe protect. We don't know his motives. And so they basically sell them, sell Joseph, as you know, to uh, these traders. Uh, commentators are not clear on the Ishmaelite, Midianite situation. Most would say this is probably more of a term, like we might say a, a band of gypsies came through. It's sort of a, yes, it's tied to Ishmael, who was still alive at the time of the story, but it sounds more like a type of traitor. Uh, Dothan is on a highway that goes down to Egypt, and it's a, certainly a place where um, this sort of event could happen. Unlike Shechem, they would have never seen this. So this is kind of a recap of our story. And the principles that we're going to pick out, the first one we're going to talk about is, um, is God's sovereignty. Like, when you read this passage, it's mind-boggling how God's sovereignty is at play. And, and when you start to think about even almost, I don't want to say it's humorous, but Joseph has this dream. And in order for the dream to actually take place, he has to tell his brothers and they have to want to murder him. And then his dad has to send him, even though his dad knows that they've conspired at one point in the past. Remember the bad report. His dad has to send him to them, which is like, why are you doing this, Jacob? So Joseph goes. But they not only, they, they can't kill him. Something has to happen to where he doesn't get murdered. And the reason this happens is Reuben and Judah come in and protect him. So there's all of this stuff happening. And then along come a group of traders who want to take him and um, take him into slavery. And according to one of the commentaries, that's like, even if you're in the right spot and you have Joseph in a pit, it could be weeks or months before that that caravan would come through. So God has orchestrated this entire thing. And the, as you know, at the very end, he goes to Egypt to Potiphar's house 
which triggers for the reader, oh, this is the next step. Remember, he goes to Potiphar's house, then he goes into the jail at Egypt, and eventually he's the right-hand man to Pharaoh. So you kind of, the, the reader of this passage is going, okay, God is orchestrating perfectly this plan. But here's our dilemma. It includes willful sin. Like these brothers do evil things. And that is very important because I think for many of us, we have a tough time reconciling how God's sovereignty can include our frailty and even our willful sin. And yet it does. And so I want us to, as we lean into this passage and start to think about this, um, we need to be able to say that we must recognize our sin and understand that it doesn't keep God from his work. And my fear is often, I gave that either or earlier, either we want to diminish our sin and say, no, God's at work, I, haven't, and I didn't do anything that wrong. Or we want to say, oh, I've done so much sin, I'm, I'm evil, and just assume that we've sort of derailed our Christian life. Do you ever find yourself in one of those two camps? Again, the third way is the gospel that says you are actually in, in your sin, in God's will. Now, I don't mean God wills for you to sin. What I mean is God's will still knows that you are frail and will make these broken decisions. Now, the famous question from Romans 6, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. You know, the Israelites travel for 40 extra years. When you sin, it, it's evil and it hurts your life and, and it, it requires the blood of Christ. But the point is, oftentimes when we come to the cross, when we come to our senses, we need to remember that God has forgiven us in our sin and loves us in the midst of this and will actually use these broken things for his glory. So that's one of our encouragements from this story. But here's where I want us to draw in a little bit more. Who do you relate to? Do you relate to these brothers? I've had some conversations where people, and I've read some writers where, yeah, I think we're supposed to relate with the brothers a little bit. Joseph is pure. Uh, maybe he comes across as a little bit arrogant, and the brothers conspire. And one of our, I think, our fallen conditions in our passage is their anger and their hatred of, of him. In Matthew 5, Jesus famously says, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And then he gives these examples. And he says, you've heard it said, do not murder. Now, everyone in this room agrees with that one. So whether you're raised Jewish or Christian or even atheist, we all sort of get you don't murder people. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, do not call your brother a fool. Now, what's happening there? Well, two things. One, calling your brother a fool or hating somebody and murdering them are both equally guilty of sin. And remember, sin has these two properties. You have the property of guilt and the property of pollution. It, they're both equally guilty, but of course, a physical murder is far worse on the pollution scale. Like, I'm going to just tell you all right now, if I have a choice between you hating me and murdering me, I'm going to choose the hatred. I don't like that, you know, but I'm going to choose it, unless you're really a bad aim. So, but for Jesus, he knows something else. He knows this. No one does premeditated murder without it starting as a seed. And these brothers have kindled hatred for their brother. 
And it's not only been kindled, but then there's this incredibly unique opportunity for him to be coming, you know, is that him by himself? And, the, and they start this kind of whisper, you know, let's, what, what should we do? And it's like mob mentality takes over. And pretty soon, all but like Reuben seems to have decided we're going to take him out. And we don't know how many of the 11 brothers are present. I, I have a feeling Benjamin's not present there, but we aren't told. We know he's alive. But here's the thing. Why do they want to murder? James tells us what causes fights and quarrels among you. Is it not this? You do not have, so you murder. What do they not have? They think they don't have their father's love. They think they don't have their father's blessing, right? Um, one of the, tr the challenges of this passage is in our modern era, we would all agree, don't, don't play favorites with your children. Like even if you struggle with it, even if you do it, you, you know you're not supposed to, right? Now children, when they tell their stories, I find children often, or grown-up children will say, well, I was my parents' favorite, you know, everyone. But a good parent, each kid says that, right? Each kid's like, I'm secretly the one. But in this culture, every generation blessed one of the next. Like Abraham gave Isaac the blessing over Ishmael, right? Isaac blesses unintentionally Jacob over Esau. And Jacob, though 12 will be kings, he's going to bless one. And at this point, they think it's Joseph, but that's, that's normal. Like, it's not unusual in this culture. So there's this deep, deep envy about Joseph's being blessed by Jacob, but it seems to be rooted in the fact that Joseph really is worthy of the blessing. There's something about him um, that he's able to manage, he's able, I mean, it just seems like the blessing of the dreams that God has placed a blessing on Joseph. Now, let's just kind of talk about him for just a moment to see why he is the one. Um, at the very beginning of this conversation, it's really interesting. Jacob says, are your brothers pasturing the flocks in Shechem? Here. Go to them and see if it is well with your brothers. The word for well there is shalom. In verse 4, the same word is used when it said that the brothers hated him and would not even speak peacefully or with shalom to him. And then here we see that what Jacob is interested in is that his sons have peace. And as you know, the word shalom means peace in the, in the, in the Old Testament. But it also it, it has that deeper meaning of flourishing he, Jacob, wanted to send Joseph to go see that the brothers were blessed, that the brothers were flourishing. Now, if, Jake, if Joseph wanted to give a bad report, all he had to do is get to Shechem, look around and go, they're not here, and go back and say, hey, Dad, they're not even here. They're gone. Who knows where they went? But he seeks him out. Notice Joseph has this nature of going to find those brothers no matter where they've been. And when he finds them, do you notice something that happens in this story from the moment where he says, here I am, and then the conversation with the stranger, and then he goes to Dothan, we don't hear any more from Joseph. You never hear him speak again. You never hear Joseph yell, beg for his life. You know, now, did he? We don't know. But the way the story presents it is he goes silent. 
And we know that in Isaiah 53, when Isaiah is prophesying about the suffering servant, he said, like a sheep before his shearers, he was silent. And we know that Jesus, when he's on trial, is even ridiculed for how he's not defending himself. And what we find in Joseph is a picture of Jesus going to his brothers who are sinning against him and even wanting him dead and bringing them life. God is sovereign over their sin and God is sovereignly bringing Joseph to rescue them. Now what about you and I? Where are we? I think that we often hear the gospel, we hear the story, we hear about Jesus. But if we're honest in our heart of hearts, we, we can revolt against even the beautiful picture of Jesus' coming to us. Because what it requires for these brothers to receive those dreams of Joseph is this idea that they've got to bow down to him. And here, I, I was thinking about that this week because all of us, I think, could relate with the brothers and say, yeah, if I had a sibling who's like, one day, someday, you're going to bow down to me and I'm going to be in the middle. But here's the most fascinating thing. All of us love to bow. Have you ever, you know, you've heard Philippians 2 when Jesus comes at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And have you ever kind of thought, yeah, I guess I'll, when that all happens, I'll, I'll sort of kneel and, and I'll just kind of confess. Is that how you envision that? Have you ever met a famous person? Have you ever been anywhere in, a, in the vicinity? Am I saying that right? I wanted to throw an F in there. Have you ever been in a vicinity where someone's like, did you know so-and-so is like a couple of blocks away and your heart leapt? Like what if, I don't want to name a famous person because then half of you will hate that person and the other half will love them. But just picture your, who's your person? My, one of my people is James Taylor. I've talked about before. And when we were at a, talk about God's sovereignty, a pit stop in Santa Fe, which I know is crazy, literally for one lunch from the ski slopes back. Emily's like, I need to call my parents back when they had pay phones. We well, were dating at the time. Yes, we've known each other for like a long time. We're at the pay phones in the square of Santa Fe. And as we're walking back, I see the back of a guy. I'm like, Emily, that's James Taylor. And my heart just started racing. And she's super confident. She's like, let's go. Like, let's go meet him. I'm like, no, 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 no. But we did. We kind of trailed him creepily for about a block. And he's handing money to uh, some of the um, homeless people in the area. And so should have taken a hint to not bother him. But uh, being bold, I was like, James Taylor. And he turns around and he's like, yes. And I was just like, <laughs> I said, my brother is your biggest fan. <sighs> He's like, well, tell him thanks. <laughs> like, I think that's what he said. I, I couldn't contain it for just this guy. And by the way, he's awesome. He was great. We've met, we actually, Emily met him later, like, at another time. Like, I think God wanted me to know James Taylor. James Taylor, if you're listening online. When Jesus returns... We're not going to be like, do I want to get on my knees? Do I want to say it? Everything in our body is going to want to worship and get on our knees. And he's going to look at you and he's going to say, I love you. You are mine. 
because he pursued you. And the most beautiful thing about the Joseph story in its context is that interaction happens at the end of the story with those sons, with those brothers that killed him and Joseph. And how much more is it going to happen with us? When the true Joseph, Jesus Christ, returns, he knows your sin. And he knows the way you and I rebel. And he wants us to confess that sin and he wants us to repent of that sin, but he's not holding out for those things before he loves you. He loves you on the front end. And it's because of that love and because of that deep, deep connection that we can actually confess our sins. Well, as we close, I just want to just read a quote from uh, Dan Allender because... Um, he describes sin as this. This is a pretty intense thing. He says, in its simplest definition, sin is hatred of God. This is not the quote on the front, though that's a great quote. He says, in its simplest definition, sin is, not, is a hatred of God. Every time I set my heart in opposition to God, I demand that life work according to my vision, and I act in the power of my arrogance, I turn him into my enemy. When do I feel most compelled to take life into my own hands and pursue the false gods of an enemy kingdom? That's the question I would like you to ask. What gets your heart beating? When do you think, ooh, I could, I could do this thing and, and soothe myself with these items or these thoughts or I can go after this? When do we conspire with these brothers? Maybe we don't say I want to murder somebody, but when do you think I want to like, take that person out? I want to I get rid of them from my life. Like, when do we do these things, are you aware that when we do them, we are enemies of God, and we are rebelling from him, and yet Jesus is saying in the New Testament, and what we're seeing here with Joseph is he knows that you're rebelling, and he's coming to rescue you in that rebellion, so the practical application is this, don't do the either or, don't say, you know, I struggle with sin a little bit, that's the, um, the brothers not being as evil as they could be. Or don't say, no, I believe the gospel fully. I'm just thankful I don't have very much sin to confess. What the gospel is freeing you and I to do is actually, in light of the beautiful, pure love of Jesus, we can be more honest about the ways we rebel and the ways we emulate these brothers, knowing that God is with you in that confession and knowing that he actually is the one drawing you to be honest about these ways that we run from him. So who do you want to murder? I hope it's not me. But if it is, Jesus loves you and will heal you from that. But begin to look at your own heart and say, Lord, where am I hating? Where am I rebelling? And bring those to him. And I would ask you, often I'll say this day or when you go home or we have communion in a little bit. In the next few moments, prepare your heart by saying, Lord Jesus, will you forgive me? for the ways I've rebelled from you. And name those things as you come to that communion table. Let's pray. Father, we are desperately in need of a rescue. We hate that we have more in common with these brothers than we dare admit. But Father, you know that about us. That's why you sent your son to save your people. And Jesus, you knew about the cross when you came and you knew the cost the cost of a perfect life, the cost of a death that was gruesome. 
and you knew, Lord, that you would be raised and that you would be king forever, rescuing your people. So, Holy Spirit, we pray that as you are administering these truths to us in this time, and especially in a moment as we take the supper that you've left us, will you revive our souls to be both overjoyed and just in awe of your presence and equally willing to name the ways we rebel from you. Teach us to be honest with you, Lord. Amen.